You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Okay, well, it is uh, good. It actually is good to see anybody uh, here this morning. To be Spirit points for you if you're here. Uh, you've got two things working against you, really. Uh, item number one is, you know, spring forward, you know, a.k.a. National Sleep-In Sunday. So it's, uh, but, but here you are, like you've, you've, you've surpassed test one. And of course, if you, if that was gonna, not going to stop you, the next one is uh, coronavirus. And, uh, and, yet, and, and here you are, you know, it's a little sparse in the middle, but we made it. Um, so that's a thing. I don't know if you guys like are in the, like following the news much. I, even if you're not, how can you not like come across this constantly? It is, uh, if you've never heard of it, welcome. Um, coronavirus is an airborne virus that is, um, it's spreading uh, right now uh, worldwide. Uh, some of the stats I looked up, as of this morning, we're at about 100,000 cases worldwide. So 100,000 folks uh, internationally have been uh, affected and infected with it. And of those, about 3,500 or so have ended in fatalities. So that the death toll is at about 3,500 uh, people of the 100,000. And, uh, and gosh, that's, I mean, that's sad anytime that's happening. That's, those are human lives, and that, that is... That's a hard uh, reality, and th- and there's a lot of fear right now, like about it. I mean, again, the news feed. That's I mean, that, it's Joe Biden and it's coronavirus. That's what you get in, on your news feed right now, and uh, you know, and things are. I mean, people are making decisions based on this. I have I had a, a an event booked in uh, L.A. Th- uh, three three weeks from now, two weeks from now, and they just canceled on me yesterday for this uh, uh, because of co- coronavirus. And and there's uh, you know, people are like making decisions about like big national events. Uh, the, the Olympics, did you hear about this? The Olympics committee has given themselves 90 days to decide whether or not they're gonna even have like the Olympics, like at all. If they do that, that'll be the, the second time in history that the Olymp- Olympics have been like totally canceled. It's in, uh, supposed to be in Tokyo this year and the, the only other time it was canceled uh, was back in the, uh, the 30s and 40s, um, and that Olympics was in Tokyo. So, sorry, Tokyo. It, uh, it's unfortunate for you guys. Uh, but there's a lot of fear, and there's a lot of anxiety right now. There's uh, a lot of angst. And, and I, on the one hand, I get it. Like, it's, it's a scary thing. But, but I think the crazy thing is, like, as scary as this is, what a lot of folks are coming out and starting to point out right now in articles and things like that is that um, when you take this virus... Right, and you put it up next to uh, another virus, like uh, say influenza, like the, the common flu. There's really no comparison as to like which one's worse, right? Like no no comparison. The, the flu far and away uh, d- destroys uh, coronavirus in terms of its intensity. So five million people annually are infected with the flu, uh, and that happens every year. And of those five million, six hundred and fifty. Thousand of those people, this is according to the World Health Organization, 650,000 of them die of flu-related uh, illnesses. So, and that, that happens annually. So, so it's, it's mu- I mean, you compare them, it's much worse, far and away worse. Uh, and yet, what's interesting is, my guess is probably nobody in this room has canceled a flight this month because you heard the place you're flying to has the flu, right? You probably didn't do that, right? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do that? Because we understand the flu, right? We have, we've had time to get to know it, to familiarize ourselves with it, to study it. Like we have vaccines for the flu. So it's, it's not near as intimidating because we kind of looked at all sides of it. And so because we know it, we can fight against it. Right, because we know it, we can fight against it. And see, that's the thing with like this COVID nineteen coronavirus thing. What's scary about it is not so much its mortality rate; right? it's actually relatively low compared to other sort of pandemics in the world. Uh, it's not that it's its mortality. It's what's scary about it is we don't know it yet. We're still trying to figure it out. Every article is like just trying to figure out how does it spread and what's the incubation period, how many cases are there, and what is the actual mortality rate, and all these things we got to figure out because you can't fight what you don't know. You can't fight what you don't know. And that's exactly the thing. God bless you. Watch out for this one. I'm just saying. Pray for it. This thing. Quarantine. All right. 
But these, I, I want you to see this. That is exactly the thing that James picks up on as he's writing his letter to the church. That, that's what he's doing. James is setting his eyes on something that, that oftentimes is misunderstood and unknown and opaque to us, this issue of temptation. And, and he's going to help us see what we could not see before because you cannot fight what you do not know. You can't fight it if you don't know it. So what we're going to try to do this morning is we're just going to try to get to know it better so we can fight more effectively against temptation. And here's the main point today. If you don't, get, if you don't write anything else down, this is the thing that you should hold on to this morning. This is the main point. In every temptation, God is your ally, not your enemy. You feel me? In every temptation, God is your ally, not your enemy. And to see that, we got to first take a look at temptation itself. And so we're going to watch this unfold in, in four parts from James. The lie, the truth, the great lie, and the greater truth. The lie, the truth, the great lie, and the greater truth. So let's get into it. James 1, starting in verse 13, says this. <coughs> Uh-oh. <clears throat> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so, so let's set the stage a little bit. Where have we been? This verse is coming on the heels of 12 other verses. James talking about what? He's talking about trials in our life, the testing of our faith. We saw that a few weeks ago when Rodney preached in verses 1 through 12. That's what he's doing. And, jo and James is showing us something about trials. He's showing us a few things. One, that they're inevitable. There's not a person in here who's not affected by or going to be affected by a trial in your life. If you're not right now, just wait about 30 minutes. It's coming for you. Trials are inevitable. They're not just inevitable. That They're varied. They're various Right? They come in all different shapes and sizes. Yours might not look like yours, but they're all difficulties that we're having to walk through. And, and third, here's the surreal part of it. James teaches us that they're actually authored by God himself. Now, isn't that a, that's a, a weighty reality that God it came up with them. Like no, full stop. No apologies. That, and, and God has good reasons for this, James said. He has good reasons for testing our faith. Here's one of them. Uh, verses uh, 2, James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith does what? Produces steadfastness. That one of the, the gifts of a trial to you is that it builds your character in such a way that you're sturdier by the end of it. As you persevere through it, perseverance is produced in you. There's a steadfastness that comes out of that. But it's not just that he's working something in your character. He's actually working something for your future. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the testing of our faith is meant to refine us now in our character and to reward us later, that that is what God in his kindness is up to in us in presenting trials to us. And that is an awesome thought, isn't it? That what, it, what an awesome thought that he's up to all those things in us until you're actually in a trial. And then it's the worst. None of that makes sense. Everything that like we held on to, it's like the, no to that. That doesn't, I'm not encouraged anymore. Like, it's just hard. And I, and I, you know, one of the things that's hard is like, I know that I'm talking to a big room of, of people and some of us, this feels so acute for us because you're not just like going through a trial, you're like getting your doctorate in trials right now. Like, I, I'm, I've, I've, I know because I'm talking to a lot of you and like, man, if I could just share stories, like you, it would blow your mind how much suffering is happening like in this room right now. Like there's a lot of, it's a lot of heaviness. It's, it's hard. People are going through some stuff. And when you're going through things, there is a, a kind of cynicism that has a tendency to, to show up in us in those hard moments in our life. All of a sudden, that the God who, who looked so kind uh, when we were just studying about him doesn't look so kind anymore. All of a sudden, it's really, it's a hard sell to buy that he's benevolent toward me. When I'm in the midst of difficulty, it's hard to believe that God is up to my good 
in hard times, it's really easy to see God no longer as an ally, but an enemy to my flourishing. Does that make sense? It's, it's, uh, it's Lord of the Rings. It's Lord of the Rings. Okay, so uh, uh, the return of the king. Uh, you got Frodo and his friend Sam. They're being led by the creature Gollum to Mount Doom to destroy the ring of power. That is the nerdiest sentence I've ever said on stage. But just follow me. So they're on the mountainside and they're tracking up uh, with Gollum, leading them. And if you've ever seen the movie or read the book, like the, it's just a, it's just the movie's like three and a half hours of Frodo just getting the tar beat out of him. Like he's just exhausted and like every moment is you're just seeing his energy just being zapped and, and Gollum capitalizes on this and it, what does he do? He frames Sam for eating all the bread and, he, and then he makes it seem like Sam is actually after Frodo's ring. And then do you remember what happens next? What happens next? In the midst of extreme suffering, Frodo stops trusting in the only person who is actually there to help him, and he sends him away. He sends him away. And, and when he does that, he opens himself up to a world of pain and suffering for the rest of the story. Because he began to believe that his ally was his enemy. And James knows this kind of thing happens to us in trials. It's one of the things that comes with the territory. And so he, he warns us against this. That's, that's where we're picking up in verse 13. It says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. James is saying, hey, abandon that view. It's not right. It's not true. And then he gives a reason for this. Here's the reason he gives. The reason it's not true is because it's not in God's nature to do so. That's not in God's nature. For God, he says, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, that phrase there, cannot be tempted, it is a very uh, rare phrase in your New Testament. It only appears right here. It is a passive adjective, aperstos. And that, that word literally translates to untemptable. That God is literally untemptable. He, he cannot be tempted. The things that you and I find alluring, he finds repugnant. There's nothing inside him that is drawn to sin and temptation. It's not in his DNA. It's not his makeup. Part of what it means to be God is there's no attraction to sin. He hates it, so it's not in his nature to love what he hates. You see, that that would be a conflict of interest. And if, and if it's not in his nature to want it for himself, why would he ever want it for his people? Why would he ever want it for us? So, so James is just arguing logically, saying, hey, God doesn't even want this for himself. Why would he want it for you? He doesn't want it for you. So don't, don't blame God for feeling tempted. That's not how he works. That's not what he's up to. It's, uh, it's, it's just not who God is. Now, I, I want to pause right here, and I just want to zoom out a, a bit to kind of commentate on what James is doing uh, in this moment. So uh, what is he doing here? What is the, uh, th- think about it. Uh, he's talking about trials. Now he's talking about temptations. And, th- and then he says, hey, I-, I want you to see this thing about God. What is he doing? What's the first thing that he does to help us fight temptation? He teaches us theology. Isn't that interesting? That when James thinks about how to combat something like temptation and sin, he thinks you should study theology. You should, you should get, let me tell you what God is like. That's what he's saying. I want to tell you that. And here's what I want you to hear. Good theology is one of the main ways we fight against temptation. Good theology, a right understanding of God, is one of the main ways that, that God gives us to fight back against temptation. And I, I pause over this because I know that, that word theology is not a sexy word for a lot of us. For a lot of us, like, we're, you're just hearing that, you're like, dude, I am so not the theology type. Like, that's for you, pastor. Like, you do the theologizing, you come out here, you give me all your sprinkles, and I'll take that, and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll think about that. But I'm kind of, I just kind of want to be right up here, and I, I don't want to be brought down to the, I'm not nerdy like that. It's, I just want to clear the air. That's not how the Bible talks about theology. It's not how the Bible talks about rigor of getting to know God. It is not a nerd's game. It's not... Knowing theology is not about you getting smarter so you can win in a debate. 
It's not about you just uh, uh, finding some cool facts like at a dinner party to share. That's not what it's for. Knowing theology, knowing who your God is, is a defense for you against temptation. Like, you are running the risk of opening yourself up to all sorts of temptations and sin and struggle unless you go deep with God. So, so even if it's not in your nature to be like a booky person, the Bible is calling us to go as deep as we can with God because it's a protection against us from temptation. Do you see that? Does that make sense? And, and to that end, I actually want to uh, say this. Uh, this month, this is perfect timing for this. This month, we're featuring a book in our bookstore that I think is going to help you in this. Um, it's a book uh, by Wayne Grudem called Bible Doctrine. Believe it or not, this is the lighter of his uh, two editions. Uh, so it's a, it's a systematic theology book. Now that word just means it, it is a book that sort of catalogs all of the, the things in Scripture uh, that you would want to know about and puts them in a book and makes sense of them sort of like systematically. So it talks about the nature of God, the nature of man, sin and temptation, angels and demons, eschatology, like the things of the future, like studying end time stuff. It talks about all of that in this book. It's a catalog of those things. And it, this is such a great resource for you to have in your household, for like every house to have something like this where you can flip to. As maybe for you, if you're a parent, you're pastoring your kids through stuff and you're trying to make sense of something. It's a great book to have. If you're just a, a college student or a single person, like a great reference book for you to have. And we're selling it in the, uh, in the bookstore out there. We're just selling it at cost uh, to us. So uh, be sure to pick it up. We may have a few more copies. I actually have no idea. We might have sold out. But uh, be checking it out, and we'll keep it stocked for you. But this is one way that uh, we can continue to fight against sin and temptation. Okay. Um, so we have seen uh, that it's a lie to say that God tempts us. That's the lie. That's the first thing. God is the author of trials. Yeah, he tempts, I mean, he tests us, but he never tempts us. So then, we got to ask the question, where does temptation come from? Right? Where does it come from? If it doesn't come from him, where does it come from? And James's answer, I think, is surprising. James's answer is from us and only us. That's, that's what James says. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Did you catch that? By his own desire. So what is the truth about temptation? We've heard the lie. What is the truth? The truth is this. We are responsible for our own temptation. That's a sideways pill to swallow. I, I get it. But the, it's what the text says. God does use trials to refine our character, but it is us who are on the hook for the ways that we turn what God has intended for good in our lives, and we, we actually move towards something used for evil. Like, that's, that's on us. Think about it like this. Um, the truck I drive is a good creation from Ford Motor Company. Mm that gets me where I need to go, point A to point B, at about five miles a gallon, and it's great, and, and I love it. But if I take that truck and I say, I don't know, run over my enemy, I cannot charge Ford Motor Company for first-degree murder. That's just not how it, how it works. Why, why can't I do that? Well, I can't do that because I use something intended for good by the creator to do something evil. So it might have been Ford's truck, but it was not Ford's foot on the gas. Do you see that? That's the, that's the difference. And in the same way, every trial is from God, yes, intended by him to lead us, to take us to holiness but every temptation that we experience in the middle of that trial, according to James, that's actually on us. That's our doing. Okay, so, so pause that. You, you, might, you might hear that and be like, oh, okay. But you might be thinking, wait, something, something doesn't make sense. What about, what about the devil? Right? Where's he factor into all this? I mean, isn't, isn't the devil literally called the tempter? Right? In, in James 4.3, uh, he's called the tempter in Scripture. What, does he not play a role in this? Is it not his fault? Here's what I want to say to that. Y yes, Satan definitely has a role. 
And James knows who Satan is. He's about to talk about him in like four chapters, right? So, so it's not that he's unaware. He could have included information about the devil right here, but he didn't. And I think he did it on purpose. Why? Because I think James wants us to see that ultimately, not even the devil can make you be tempted. Do you feel me? The devil, can, that's above his pay grade, y'all. That, that he doesn't have authority to do that. Our temptation is on us. I, my, I, my kids uh, disobeyed us one time and we found out about it and went back and, and confronted them about it. And my daughter looked at me and she said, the devil made me do it. I was like, the devil's about to make me do something right now, actually. <laughs> right? But here, here's the thing. The, the, the devil didn't make her do it. It was genius. Good move, Sophie. But the, the, the devil didn't make my daughter do that. He doesn't have that kind of clearance. James's point is, whatever we do, we do it because, wait for it, we want to do it. And dang, I mean, think about the things we do. And James is saying, don't you take that finger and point anywhere but here. You point it to yourself because that's on you. Well, now, how does it work? How does, that, how does that temptation work? Well, James, to explain this, he gives us two metaphors to make sense of it. And the first one is a fishing. It's a fishing. Look at it with me. Verse 14. <laughs> but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, most commentators are going to tell you that James is using fishing language here, that this is borrowed from ancient fishing language, that word lured and enticed to describe how it works. That word lured in the Greek is this word excelco. It could also be translated dragged away. Some of your translations might say that, that, that you're dragged away and enticed. So you get this visual of, of a fish spotting something, grabbing it, and being snagged by it and, and being dragged away. So temptation begins like a hook in the water. That's what James is saying. That's how temptation begins. And look, I, we're in Midlothian right now, so I know you know how fishing works. Uh, do you drop a bare hook in the water to catch a fish? No, you would never do that. That would be something I would do. You, you don't do that. You're smarter than that. You're better than that. No, what you do is you bait your hook, right? You do it to conceal what's deadly with something that's lovely. That's what you do. And the fish sees it, bites it, and is dragged away. That's what it's like. Here's the point. Sin never shows up to the party ugly. Sin never shows up to the party ugly. You will never go to a porn site and have it say, click here if you want to ruin your life and your marriage. It will never say that. Sin never shows up to the party ugly. It's like, a, a, do you remember the, the story of Christmas Carol uh, by Charles Dickens? So uh, there's that scene in the book where uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, that old man, he's, he's taken by the ghost of Christmas past back to a time when, when this uh, woman, Belle, who he was engaged to, breaks off the engagement with him. And she breaks it off uh, with him because she realizes that he will never love her as much as he loves his money. And old Scrooge is watching young Scrooge be totally okay with that. And it is breaking old Scrooge's heart. Why? Because he's so bothered that he couldn't see back then how the lure of money and possessions would destroy all the meaningful relationships in his life. He's so distraught by that. And here he is at the end of his life, and he's looking back, and he's realizing, I have nothing now except loneliness and cash. That's all I got. I'm, I'm an old crotchety man who, who has no friends. I'm lonely and all I've got is some stuff. And I wish I would have known at the beginning what I know now. But see, that's not how it was sold to him at the beginning. At the beginning, it was sold to him like this. You're going to be rich. You're going to have stuff. You're going to have power. You're going to be happy when you get this. Bait wrapped in something that looks lovely. And he was hooked, and it ruined him. Sin never shows up to the party ugly. The hook in all, and this is, every, this is all of us, guys. The hook will never be dressed uh, in something ratty. It's always going to be dressed in something that you and I really desire, right? More, more money. It's just a little more money. 
some security. Like, can I, can I stop with like the chaos in my life? I need some security. You're like, I just a Man, some popularity, because somebody like me for a change, like a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, if only I would bend just a little bit on this thing, or like the allure of a person who you know isn't right for you, but you're just so lonely that maybe, maybe they'll do, like maybe that can work, or like the satisfying feeling of a payback, right? How good that would feel as you imagine, or the pleasure of a fix after like a long and exhausting day. I know every time I go to this thing, it just soothes me and I want to be soothed. And why would that be bad if it feels so soothing or just the promise of a good time? Like sin never shows up to the party ugly, but by the end of the night, you always find out who you're really with. You will always find out. And James shows us this by switching the metaphor on us. And he moves from fishing to now talking about pregnancy, which is interesting. He says this, verse 15. Then desire, there's that word again uh, from earlier, our own desires, uh, desire, epithumia. Some of your Bibles might have it translated as lust or evil desire. That's, that's the word, that, that wanting part of me, that wanting part deep down inside that wants those corrupt things, that then desire, when it has conceived, you follow me? When it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Now remember, he's talking about how we move from just feeling tempted to actually sinning. And he's saying there's a difference between the two, and the difference, he says, is the enactment of my will. That's what he says the difference is. There is a point in the moment of temptation where we decide to move toward what we desire. And that step, when we take that step toward the thing that, that we desire from afar, when we take that step, that step, the Bible calls that step right there sin. Not before, but in that step. That's where sin is conceived. And I don't know if you heard it in that, but that should actually be a massive comfort to a lot of us. That should actually mean a great deal to you. What do I mean? The Bible never calls the experience of temptation sin. It never does that. It puts it on the enactment of the will, not in the experience of temptation. Let that, man, some of you guys need to be relieved by that today. Some of us in this room, you are just a, you're a heap of guilt and shame right now, this morning, because you know that though you love God, there's like, there's just this part of me that still just wants these things that I said I hate, but I just... I keep going back to them and back to them and trying to get them off of me. But every time I turn my head to the bait, it still looks good. And I did, does it ever stop looking good? Like what? And, and you're, you're filled with shame because of that? Because you think that somehow it makes you dirty? And I just, I just want to tell you that that's not what the Bible teaches. Your God loves you, Christian. He loves you in the, in the middle of your temptation. And, the, and you don't need to call something sin that God does not call sin. It is not sin to, to spot the bait. It is sin to bite the bait. You see that? And there's a big difference between the two. For the rest of your lives, all of us will be just swimming in a sea of lures. Till the day you die, it doesn't matter how old you are, those lures are hanging there, and there is bait on all of them, thousands, millions of them, all around you, tailor-made for your specific bents. And you're going to be swimming around them all your life. And can I tell you something? Spotting those things, seeing them as desirable, but resisting, there's no sin in that. You're going to spot them your whole life. I hope you can spot them and identify them. Spotting the bait is not the sin. Biting the bait is where we sin. And James is wanting to make a distinction here for you. So I, I hope that you would just feel the love of Jesus in this, this moment for you. Like, if you're burdened by the weight of temptation, you're just wondering, is this feeling going to go away? Maybe the feeling doesn't. Maybe just you keep crucifying it till the day Jesus comes back and you get to be with him. And man, what a day that will be for, for all of us. But, but you need to know that in the midst of that allurement, Jesus is with you in that. He loves you in that. And I, um, 
I don't know who this next part is for, but I, I was prepping last night, and I just feel like I need to say this. There are some of us here this morning that deal with things like same-sex attraction, and that can feel acutely difficult, right? Because in some ways, for, for a lot of us, it, that feels so like down in the core of like who we are, and, and you're really wondering like, am I ever going to change? Is this like this thing feels so fundamental to me? These wants that I know God says I ought not to want that, but every time I look that way, it's, it has a pull to me. I'm, I'm cutting off the lines, and I'm not biting the bait. But like, does it ever? Am I ever going to change? Like, am I? Are my appetites going to diminish? Like, is He going to change my what lures me? And I just want to say this: maybe. Maybe he will. I, I know plenty of people who, who uh, have dealt with same-sex attraction, loved Jesus, God changed their heart in such a way that they're now able to um, operate happily in, in, in uh, marriages with a member of the opposite sex, and, and it's been great. And that, that definitely happens, but maybe not. Maybe for the rest of your life, you're going to be battling with that lure, and it's going to be hard, and there's going to be constant moments in your life where you're having to say no to biting on the bait. And I want to look at you this morning, and I also just want to say, that does not make you any less precious to Jesus. He values you too. And you need to hear that because there's, I bet there's so much shame on you so many days. And, and Christian, if you're in Christ, you can be free from that this morning. He wants to release you from that. Look, we've all got lures. Mine don't, don't look like yours, and yours might not look like mine. We're all drawn to all sorts of weird things. We have a sinful nature. Sin is in, This is a broken world, y'all. It will not be right till he comes. But it doesn't mean he loves us less just because we can identify, oh, I'm drawn to this. No. The, the, the difference, let me say it this way. Mature Christians aren't untempted Christians. Mature Christians are resistant Christians. That is the, the difference. That is the distinction. Okay, so what's the progression so far? What do we have? What has he shown us? Verse 15, then desire, so it starts with desire. When it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth or gives birth to death. So follow this, your desire conceives as you move toward that object of your desire. That in, in that conception, um, you are conceiving a little baby girl, and that little baby girl's name is Sin. Look at her, right? And Sin, when she's allowed to grow up all the way, she has herself a baby. And that little bundle of joy is named Death. Or think of it this way, the, the grandkid of your evil desire is death. That is where all of this is always heading. My desire enacting my will, experiencing sin, sin grows up, leads to destruction, dehumanization, lack of flourishing, and death. That is the progression. And... Uh, we, it's like we want one thing at the beginning, and then in the end, it ends up bringing something we, we never, ever wanted. That's how this whole thing feels. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean. So I was uh, 16. I went to a Christian camp with my youth group, and uh, we were up in Colorado. I don't know if you spent any time in Colorado, but it's amazing up there. Like, uh, you, you, there's actual stars that you can see in the sky, and we're in the Rockies at this campground, and... Um, and when we get there, I notice like uh, there's this cliff like right in the campground area, and there's a little walkway, it seems like. And I say to myself, I'm going up there one night. I'm going to go up there because I just want to see what I can see, right? And, uh, and so one night, every, all the campers go to the bunks, and, and I sneak off, and, and, I, and I walk over to that cliff, and I start making my way up it. And so it's a, it's a pretty high up cliff. You probably get, end up getting about 100 feet off the ground, and there's about three feet of walkway space, and then there's just forest behind me, just back here. And I'm walking, and man, it is, am let me tell you, it is amazing. There are like, there's like dozens of stars. I don't know if you guys know this, way more than three. Uh, 
so much. I'm like standing in the Milky Way galaxy and I'm just looking up and it's just, it's incredible. And as I'm staring at all this, right behind me, I hear a rustling in the bushes. And it wasn't like a cute rustling. Like, oh, maybe that's a gopher. Um, it was like the thing that eats the thing that eats the gopher kind of wrestling happening right here, right? And I'm starting to lose my mind. Um, and I'm like, okay, um, what are my options? So I start kind of walking back like this. And as I'm doing the shimmy right here, it's moving with me. And then I think, oh, dang, I, I like didn't tell anybody that I was coming. Like not even my friends know that I'm up on a cliff, like in the, in the forest, in the middle of nowhere, having just probably eaten bacon for dinner, just smelling like a meal to this jabberwocky behind me. Just, I have no idea what's about to happen. And it occurs to me, my only two options are like, walk back down along the tree line of doom or jump off the cliff. Like what? This is the point of my, these are my only two options in life, right? How did this come to this? And obviously I'm here this morning, so I I was able to shimmy in such a way that I survived. Uh, But my point is this, what was that moment for me? It was this, I saw a place that was off limits, but I desired to go to it anyways. I engaged my will, took step towards it. And as I did, instead of finding what I desired, at the end of that, I found nothing but fear, isolation, and the threat of death. That is exactly what temptation's like. When we move toward it, death is always how that thing wants to end. When we move forward, it always wants to end in death. And I I, I was debating about whether or not to press this or or not uh, right here, but I think I want to lean into it uh, for a moment because James is making a a pretty big point, guys, and I would hate for us to like turn off right now Uh, and think that this maybe isn't for us. Here's his point right now. He's looking at us and he's saying this. Your unchecked sin will kill you. That's the point of the text right, right here. Your unchecked sin will kill you. And the reason I'm concerned is because, man, I'm preaching to, to Christians, like in the Bible Belt. And like, you're the type of people that like, forget coronavirus, I'm coming to church, right? Like, look at you. You're here this morning. And when I have a room of people like this, or just even my own heart, there's a temptation to, to hear talk of like sin equaling death and to sort of check out and be like, well, that part's not for me anymore, right? Like uh, for, for me, you might say, Jimmy, I'm, a, I'm in, I'm in the club, bro. Like, I've, like I'm covered by the blood. Uh, like, like death, where is your sting? That, that whole thing all applies to me. So, so man, I really hope this speaks to somebody this morning, but this isn't really my jam. This isn't for me. And I just want to, I want to say this as kindly as I can. That verse is for you too. How do I know that that's for you? Because James wrote this letter to Christians, Right? This isn't an evangelism note. He's not like trying to reach out to lost people. Like he says it like over 30 times in this letter, like brothers and sisters. Like these are his family. These are people who really love Jesus. And he's looking, listen, he's looking at people who actually love Jesus. And he's saying to them, Your unchecked sin will kill you. How does that compute, right? We we need to feel that warning in us. But like, how do you make sense of it? Like, Jimmy, are you, are you saying that I can, like, lose my salvation, bro? Is that what, is that what James is getting after? Like, it, am I not saved by grace through faith? Like, is it actually about works? Is that what you're saying? Like, and, and, and somehow I can get out of this thing if I screw up enough? It's like, no, I, no, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, that you're not saved by grace through faith. Of course you are. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I hang, I hang my life on these truths, right? That is not what James is preaching. It's, it's not what I'm preaching. What I'm saying is you need to feel the weight of this threat in such a way that it would actually cause you to flee temptation. Well, how do we... What what am I misunderstanding then? Well, I think we're forgetting two things when we don't take this seriously. One, we're forgetting this, that people who are actually saved by grace take sin seriously. Like that's, 
That's one of the things it means to, to know Jesus is I start to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. So like if you're walking around and you're going like, man, I prayed a prayer when I was 12 and I'm, I'm good. Like I'm just kind of live my life and do my thing. And you have no like uh, disdain for the things you once loved and you love all the things that, that Jesus tells you to, to disdain. Like a flag should go up. You should feel concerned. You're, you're moving toward death. You should not feel comfort in that moment, right? The, the people who love Jesus love what Jesus loves. And so we, 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 over time, grow out of so much of our, our habitual sinning. That's what it means to be sanctified. Over time, we, we move toward him and away from sin. So we need to check ourselves with this. Here's the other thing that we forget. that Forget, like, eternity and, like, heaven and hell, just the reality of sin, every violation of God's law has a consequence. Every violation has a consequence. Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Like, the, God has built the world in such a way that it works best without sin. And so when you introduce transgression and sin into God's economy, things go awire. Right? They go, they go crazy. They don't work right. And it's just a fact of life. If you spend your life in laziness, there's a good chance you will end up broke at the end of your life. It's just, it's just, it's just math, right? If, if you refuse to take risks in your faith, you refuse to like step into generosity, for instance, like you will likely be a Scrooge at the end of your life. You're likely going to wind up a really stingy person who, who loves to protect against any sort of threat to your uh, security. If you keep running to the well of pornography, you will distort and destroy all your closest relationships. It's what sin does. It leads to death. This is what James means. It leads to all kinds of death. So hear this. Your sin can't be managed it can't be like fixed or reformed or like taken good care of and kept in a closet. It has to be killed. It has to be killed. That's what the Puritan John Owen uh, was talking about when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what he means. Your sin has to be killed. And some of you, are, you're hearing this, you're like, man, okay, good. I feel a sense of urgency now. Like this thing is serious. And you're wanting to know, how do I resist? Like if this is as serious as you say it is, I want to know, how do I fight? How do I fight against it? Well, the good news is James is going to tell us exactly how to fight against it right now. But he does that by first showing us why we keep getting into these messes in the first place. That's how he's going to show us how to get out of them. The problem, he says, our problem, our fundamental problem, is that there is a great lie that we all believe that, that motivates and sort of colors and informs and pushes forward everything we do. There is a lie hidden behind all of our desiring that pushes us towards sin and temptation. And here's what he says, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So, so he turns to them and he's like, hey, I, I don't want you to be lied to anymore. Don't embrace the lie anymore. There is a lie that you believe that is actually triggering you to run away from God and sin against him. And he's saying, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Well, what is it? What is the lie? Well, we can figure it out by reading the next verse. He says this, verse 17. Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is the great lie that lurks behind all our sin and temptation? What is, what is that lie? It's this. God is not out for my good. God's not out for my good. He's not. He's, um, he, he's holding out on me. God can't be trusted to give me good things. I just can't, I can't, can't count on him for that. This is the lie that has launched Every sin in history, that lie. And I know it because that's the lie that launched the first sin in history. Right? Your mind should be going back to Genesis 3 right now. What, what do I mean? Do you remember the serpent in the garden? What did he say to Eve? Hey, did, did, God, uh, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Like, you can't eat from anything? Right? 
What is he doing? He's, he's trying to undermine her reliance on the nature of God's goodness to her. He was like, hey, I just want to let you know um, real quick that God, um, he's actually holding out pleasure from you because he knows that when you eat of that tree, you'll become like him. That's really good for you. It's bad news for him. He doesn't want your good. That was the first lie. And you remember what happens in verse 6? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. That's the great lie that's hidden behind every sin you and I will ever commit or ever have committed. It's behind it all. Think, think about it. God... God cannot meet the, the deepest needs I have of intimacy in my life, and so I need to find it in a relationship, even if I know that relationship isn't good for me. i got to find it there because he can't be trusted to meet my need for intimacy. Or I don't believe that God's value of me is enough. Uh, so what I've got to do today is I've got to spend most of my time getting as many little red hearts on the bottom of my Instagram photo as possible so I can validate my existence again because I don't believe that what God has declared about me is sufficient. Or uh, God's people, like the gift of God's people that he's given me, they can't be trusted. You can't trust people. Have you met people? You can't trust people. They're, they are untrustworthy. And so I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to isolate myself from community. I'm I'm going to get, you will never find me in a Stonegate group. Like, that's just not a thing that's going to happen for me. Or, or, how about this? God, he, do, he doesn't have enough grace for me. I'm not saying he's not gracious. I'm just saying, you don't know what I've done. Like, I can't even talk about what I've done. It's so bad. And so I believe that God can cover, like, a certain level of sin. But, like, the sin that I've done, like, you should just know that he probably can't do, that's just... That's too much for him. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend my life just becoming Mrs. Morality. I'm just going to do it all right. I'm going to do it so right that at the end of it, I can point to it and say, look, I earned it. Like, I, I'm good enough, God. Like, I don't need your grace. Your grace is insufficient for me. You're not working for my good. Do you see how every sin is a product of that one lie? We doubt God's goodness for us. And if you want to get rid of a great lie, you have to expel it with a greater truth. You have to. And that's exactly what James gives us. He says this in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here is the great truth you and I need to fight our temptations. Write this down. My God is the source of every good I could want. If you believe that today, it will change you. My God is the source of every good I could want. Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 73, 16, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. God is not just up to our good. He is our good. He is good to us, and he is good for us. Or say it another way, he is good to us because he is good for us. Our God in him is everything we could need. And James is saying, you need, if, if you're experiencing good in this life, if you've ever tasted something good, you need to look up because you need to know that actually came from the benevolent one. It came from the one who's out for your good. So you don't need to look around wondering, like, who can satiate all my wanting? You look no further than Jesus because Jesus has done it. God is a good giver of good gifts. And, and you, you stop and you hear that, and, and it sounds so good, but at the same time, it's like you want to just ask, okay, well, how do I, how do I know? That, how do I know that's true? How do I know that's not just conjecture? Like, you're just saying stuff, and like, like, how do I know that he's actually for my good? Prove it. And James says, okay, I'll prove it. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says, you want me to prove it? I'll prove it. You look at the gospel. You look at the cross. You look at what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're looking for for something that would help convince you that permanently and for all time your God is actually for you, you need to look to the one event in human history where he could have withheld the thing he loved most, but instead he laid it down for your sake. If that's not a God who is a giver of good gifts to people, James is saying, I don't know what is. Out of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He saved you because of the work of Jesus. He called you to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. What more proof do you need? That's what he's saying. And I'm saying this to you guys. If anybody, if any one of us is in this room and you're struggling with temptation and sin and you're just wondering like, what is, what's going to be potent enough to take me from this thing I love but I know God hates for me to run to? What's, what's potent enough for me to go from here to turn away from that and come here? What, what could possibly like cut the line of the hook in my mouth? What could do it? James is saying the only thing that could do it, the only thing is the cross of Jesus. This is why it's so important to set the Lord, like David said, continually before me. You've got to keep looking to the news of your redemption, church. It is your only hope to persuade your wayward heart that nothing else is better than him, that no temptation, no drink from any other broken well is better than the well of Christ. He is living water for you. He's the bread of life for you. And maybe you're, you're in the room today and you're not a Christian. You're going, man, I don't, I don't even know about this. Like, I, I'm, I'm, what I want to say to you is the news I have for you is the same news I have for everybody else. The, the only hope for you to flee a life that is going to ruin you by your own design, your own wantings, will corrupt and erode in such a way that you'll be left with death in the end. The only hope for you is the same hope for me. It's the cross of Jesus. Your God wants to move towards you, and he has shown it, he has proven it by giving you the one thing he could have withheld, the thing most precious to him, and he didn't. He's a giver of good gifts because he sent his son to die for your sins. Man, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit right now is just awakening our hearts to, to joy in him. This is the way that we cut the line. This is the way we, we flee from the temptation. This is our hope. Hold on to it and flee to him. Let's pray. Father, we want the lines cut. Whatever is hooking us right now, we want the lines cut. And, and we, we know that the only person who has authority to do it is you. God, will you, will you help free us? If there's folks who are, who are just like bound by the chokehold of sin in this room, would you release them? And would you release them by the precious truth that you came to save sinners like them? And that if they're in your family, oh man, what a joy. What an awesome thing that is. What a freeing reality to know that you've given us everything. God, we love you. We thank you for that. God, change us. Help us, help us to be resistant to the things that we once loved and, and love the things we once resisted because we see a God who's given us everything. And we want him and we want to be like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.